0: in the mental health field we made it seem like it's all in your it's head all in your like the head.
1: landlord can hijack the rent by 20 percent. that impacts people's mental Can't health can have a
0: profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy
1: okay hey everybody welcome back uh, we're sorry for the uh, gap in time that's gone on between the last episode and now um, we tried to record a, uh, an episode with two labor organizers out of Baltimore. And there were some tech issues. So we're going to redo that on Sunday. Uh, but in the meantime, we have received a lot of uh, listener responses through email. And we've responded to most of them by email. But we figured responding to them live and having discussions about some of the most interesting emails would just be kind of fun and enjoyable for listeners. So we are going to read a couple of our favorite emails and have some discussions about them. Okay. So this says, hi, I stumbled across your podcast somehow. I think I searched for trauma and mental health and just finished the first episode. The entirety of the episode, I spent nodding in agreement of at conclusions reached and others not yet fully cobbled out details of in my own head. It was refreshing to hear you both voicing on a public platform, the conclusions you have without minimizing or diminishing their importance. To be clear, I'm not a mental health professional. I work with data and architect software for a university. My fascination and personal work on understanding mental health and surrounding issues are a result of my own and familial issues with mental health and a long-standing love of understanding complexity, troubleshooting, and problem-solving, among other things. I really look forward to the next podcast and hearing more about how you're tying together all the pieces of this puzzle. I'm considering a change of career that will involve working for working toward part of a solution to the predicament you outlined in the first podcast and would be curious if you're so inclined to hear more about your backgrounds and paths to understanding the intersectionality of the current mental health crisis. Take care, Kalista Salazar.
0: Thank you, Kalista. We really are gratified by your writing to us and we'd be happy to respond to you. Now, where I'm coming from is that I was born to a radical father and not so radical mother, and really learned about the importance of race and class, not so much gender, unfortunately, but of race and class in shaping lives in the United States. I was sensitized to that through my father's giving me books about Harriet Tubman, about Haim Solomon, a Jewish revolutionary in the American... Revolution and real about Frederick Douglass when I was a child. And my father, who didn't speak to us much at all, did point out during the McCarthy era when people were being sent to jail and I asked him, are they bad people? And he said, no, they are a red badge of courage. They spoke up for what they believed and they wanted a better world. And it's unfair that they're suffering. And because he spoke to us very little, and because the things he gave us were introductions to race and class, I cherished them. Also, as a little girl who was in foster care for a while, I created in my own mind a certain perspective on the family, because I lived with four different families, and each one claimed their values were total and absolute and each was different from the others. And I kind of learned that all adults and all authoritarian approaches are full of shit, not to, you know, not to pay attention, but to pay attention to my sister who was with me all the time and to my peers and to my, to some extent to myself. But I didn't trust authority. And then when I was about nine, I guess, I discovered the book by Engels, The Family, Private Property, and the State, in my um, parents' bookcase. And I was really too little to get it all, but I thought there's something in here I have to understand. I don't feel comfortable in this family, and I didn't feel comfortable in any of the others I lived with either. Something, and I couldn't quite get it, but I got a hint about it that really helped me. And so then later in life, when I became a child development specialist and then a therapist, I had this other perspective that the family isn't the whole world and therefore problems people bring are not just family oriented, but their families are very different and very much enmeshed in the social situation in which they find themselves and very much not to be trusted as absolute values. And that shaped my attitude toward being a therapist, as well as my own social justice work did. When I was in high school, I joined a group called the Zealots. It was run by a Jewish guy named Mark Schleifer, who then became a Muslim and part of Al Jazeera. But it was fun because we went around to Jewish temples, looked up what slumlords were in the temple, and then picketed outside like Haim Zimmerman is a slumlord. He owns three units in Harlem with rats and roaches. And it was a lot of fun because we gave the finger to authority, to the temple, and to some of its people in it, even though I never had related to temple. But that was an introduction. And then later I was very much involved in the civil rights movement. I was a founding mother of the women's liberation movement and was involved in a movement for midwifery rights in hospitals for women to be able to choose midwifery and to saving the public schools in New Haven, Connecticut, where I lived. And so I could see in my own development how important it is to not only look inside, but look outside at the injustices that are impinging on you and your family. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that from my very, very early years, because my father went into the um, army and volunteered for overseas duty out of his principles as a radical, and left my mother with two little girls who she hadn't really wanted much in the first place. So she had a nervous breakdown. And I could see that his his decisions totally changed our family. And then we lived with different people, each of which had different values. There were three different religions involved also. And I could learn to disregard them all, to kind of go along, to get along, to be seemingly obedient and withhold myself and not feel at home so it gave me a sense that shaped my ideas as a therapist which is it's not just in your head as our podcast indicates
1: and i'll I'll speak briefly on my background i think i went into it maybe in the uh i don't remember if it was like a if we recorded this or not harriet but we had a phone conversation about this where we both talked about our backgrounds a lot and um I guess to summarize, I did not grow up in a left-wing household at all. Um, my parents were both um, kind of evangelical, like biblical literalist. Um, like my, I remember in, in ninth grade in high school, my um, when we were being taught about the theory of evolution in biology classes, my dad especially, um, who had actually been homeless for most of my life, but he kind of came in and out of my life, usually in summers when I stayed with my grandpa because my parents had kind of split custody thing. But he would, um, we'd go on these walk-in talks and he would just rant at me for like hours sometimes about why evolution is a lie and why, um, you know, the earth is like 6,000 years old and stuff like that. So, um, I mean, I came from like, like a pretty kind of like reactionary, um, like right-wing conservative um, family. Although it's interesting because most people on my dad's side of the family – still to this day they'll say we don't know how your dad became a bible bumper we don't know how that happened and his story is when he went into the marines um he uh i mean his story is like he a lot of the black marines got real pissed about something at a certain point and they were like getting mad in the i don't know in like the cafeteria or something he got mad too and then he was put in the brig which is military jail basically for like inciting a riot. And he has this very kind of glorified story about this and everybody in the family knows that my dad lies a lot. So it's really hard to know what's what, but his story is that Jesus came to him while he was in military jail, like in the brig uh, as clear as, as, you know, you can see whatever's in front of you right now. It was very real. And then he became a born again Christian. So he has this really grandiose, uh, confusing, um, but very compelling story. And I think through that story and through this kind of bizarre charisma he had, he met my mom, I think when she was like 18 or 19, she was, uh, well, anyway, so there was a lot of like family violence and drama and and terribleness that maybe I'll talk about more extensively at at another time. But in my teens, when I started learning about other world religions and about evolution, I kind of came to a point where I had to make a decision. Like my parents are saying especially my dad are saying, don't listen to them, listen to me. And my teachers were saying um, they were much nicer about it. They weren't saying, well, we're not saying that because we're telling you this, you have to believe it. We're saying the evidence seems to suggest this in terms of science and, uh, and the, the world religion teachers were just saying, well, here's just how other religions work. We're not telling you that you should or shouldn't believe anything really. So I, I had to make a choice um, they're a, bit of a, a dividing line for me. Like, well, my teachers are actually a lot nicer and they're providing evidence and they're not like uh, threatening me. They're not saying you'll go to hell if you go against me and all this kind of stuff. So, um, science was kind of the starting point for me. And then uh, I think when I was 18, I lived near an anarchist bookstore in Burlingame, California, which I probably went out of business a really long time ago. Um, when I went to UCSB, I, I took anthropology classes, uh, learned a shit ton about tons of other cultures around the world. And I think I just went down this rabbit hole of uh, like cultural relativism and questioning more and more and more whether or not the culture and the economy and the politics that we're living in right now, is this the only way? Are there better ways? And so I started developing, I think, more of an imagination around um, could the world be better? And so eventually I became a therapist just c- because I was looking at all the options, like, how is it that I can have a, a semi-decent living and to help people knowing that it's pretty, um, insufficient, like in terms of just healing people one-on-one, that's not, that's not going to change the world necessarily, but at least it's a steady job you can have. Even during grad school, I felt really uncomfortable a lot of the time. Cause I was like, man, why did I get into this? Uh, a lot of the, a lot of, my, I hate to say this about my, um, my fellow students and I, I have this judgmental attitude sometimes, but I was like, why do they not care about the same things I care about? Um, like other, other people seem to be uncomfortable if I brought up, uh, political issues and, and whatnot. So I'm still in a place where I, I still struggle having become officially a mental health professional. And I look at most of the field and I see most of it as being pretty apolitical and, um, kind of values neutral, Anyway, I wanted it to be briefer than that, but there we go. There's a bit of my background and where I'm coming from. Um, this one says, I want to thank you both from the bottom of my heart for the work you're doing on this program. As someone who has suffered from depression and borderline personality disorder since adolescence and who has also developed enough class consciousness since to realize that my inherent outrage was not unjustified. It is so wonderful to hear those ideas validated by professionals who who are as obviously knowledgeable as the two of you. I cannot thank you enough for how much your program relieves the awful sense of alienation, which has only grown as I've watched those around me rush to return to a normal that I've never felt a part of. The world is changing before our eyes, and most of the world around me, uh, most of the people around me are entirely unaware or worse, think I'm overreacting. I don't have a preference about you speaking about this on air, if it's at all worth, worth it to you. I just wanted to show my appreciation. This is a marvelous show and incredibly important work. All the best, Amanda. And by the way, we got permission to use people's names, whether it's first and last or just first. I think I said this in an email response to Amanda, but of all the therapy modalities you can be trained in dialectical behavioral therapy is probably the one I'm most trained in. Uh, We call it DBT for short. It was designed by Marsha Linehan in the eighties as a treatment for borderline personality disorder. So, um, It's funny when Amanda brings up borderline personality disorder, something Marsha Linehan wrote about in her kind of like Bible-ish textbook about uh, borderline is um, that there's kind of two things that create borderline personality disorder. One, there is a sort of biological thing where some people are just sort of born more sensitive, quote-unquote, meaning like that light's so bright it hurts my eyes and now I'm having a big reaction to it and now it's harder for me to calm down. So... um, there's the way we conceptualize this is higher sensitivity, higher reactivity, higher return to baseline. So there's some component of biology, but the the non-biological part is um, a pervasively invalidating social environment. And Marsha Linehan wrote about how one of the reasons that women, there's a way higher, pre, higher prevalence of BPD uh, for women, as well as depression, is probably because of the pervasively invalidating social environment that women have grown up in, meaning sexism is a causal factor in depression and in BPD. And that's not really talked about a whole lot in the mental health field. Even DBT therapists, I just got out of a DBT Zoom training for the last four hours. Um, they don't really talk about these cultural factors, but I, I just want to touch on this, Amanda, that um, some of us are more sensitive than others. And we have these weird uh, definitions in the DSM that define um the different ways that we find ourselves suffering and borderline has always been an interesting, um, kind of diagnosis. I think my mom probably would have been diagnosed with borderline if she were like really thoroughly assessed. Um, but I think the degree of invalidation that, um, that girls and women are subject to in this, you know, patriarchal society can sometimes exasperate. Um, and it's not just women, obviously, like men, men can be super borderline as well. Um, but I think this, this diagnosis as we call it BPD, is in part, it's amplified to the point of being really intense due to how invalidating our social environments can be. And that can be an abusive family environment, it can be racism, it can be sexism, um, and it can result in, you know, this. Um, they're like a, a burn victim, like they're on fire, but inside emotionally. And so sometimes things like cutting or, you know, engaging this like super intense behavior is the only way they know how to turn down the intensity of what they feel inside. And I, I do think that we just, in general, don't live in a world where we don't have a lot of compassion for people who feel that way. And it's hard for us to understand that we've created a world that creates people who feel that way. So there's a rant about borderline personality disorder. And so, yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know you. So maybe you are, maybe you aren't quote unquote overreacting to things, but um, having <laughs> intense reactions to the world we're living in seems very normal to me. So. Uh, yes. Yeah.
0: The, the idea of over. Who's to say what's over and under? According to what? And I think that pe- some people are more sensitive than others. Also, I've noticed that clients who have been labeled borderline, and I must say, I don't like to label anybody. So, people, if I have to think of something for a diagnostic, statistical, manual form, then I usually put down PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder, because everybody's stressed from their childhood and their environment, so I feel okay about that. But I don't like to pigeonhole people who are so complicated into a diagnosis that is convenient mainly for the psychopharmaceutical industry and doesn't help people with their problems. I've also found that people who've been labeled borderline and extreme usually grow up in a very extreme environment, whether they're all good or you're all good or you're all bad. Often I found this almost always in highly fundamentalist families where you're either with Jesus or you're with the devil. So you learn to see things in polarized forms. But I'm glad we could speak to you because I don't, I don't like those diagnoses. I feel they pigeonhole people. I see everyone who has problems in life and I don't see the point of a lot of diagnostics, which I think narrow people down, and are useful mainly for prescribing drugs, which I don't do.
1: So there was uh, somebody named James whose message. Uh, we're sorry, James, but the message you left on Anchor was super garbled. Like it was, it was choppy, so we're not going to include it in the um, in the podcast. But uh, the gist of it that I heard was you were introducing this, uh, a topic idea, which I think is great. I just don't know if I can speak on it. And it has to do with, with the relationship between, uh, food, diet and mental health. And in particular, how, um, you know, I think it's common knowledge and there's probably plenty of research out there to show that there are, you know, very kind of scientifically validated ways that, uh, these two things are connected. However, um, You thought it would be interesting for us to touch on how food and diet are affected by socioeconomic factors, such as access to healthy food or not, you know, like food deserts and the different ways that stress is exacerbated by socioeconomic factors and then influence eating habits. And I guess, uh, I'm, I'm thinking like, let's say you're poor and, you know, you're subject to like, I don't know, racism, sexism, like transphobia, like whatever, you know, social things in the environment are making you super, super stressed out, um, like, maybe you'll go to the, the liquor store because it's two blocks away instead of going to like the Whole Foods, which is unaffordable. And you're just going to stock up on a shit ton of candy and like binge eat candy or something like that. And so like the stress is creating a feedback loop. I'm, that's my interpretation of what you're saying and, and maybe how we could explore that uh, more, um, more in depth. Um, I feel personally like it's a bit beyond my scope of knowledge. So, um, but Harriet, did you have any comments on that one?
0: I did, although I haven't actually studied the psychobiology of healthy food versus not healthy. But if we look at what's happening with the people who are most stressed, whose jobs are the most stressful, because swing shifts where you never know when you're working and you can't get a sleep schedule, like often nurses' aides have and um, workers at warehouses and so on, are terrible for stress. And the less control you have over your job, which means usually the lower paying jobs where people don't have control over their jobs, are the most stressful. And the less money you have, the less you can afford health food and non-pesticide driven food. If you want green beans, a can of heavily salted green beans is a lot cheaper than going to the farmer's market and getting fresh green beans. And so that there is this terrible confluence of factors on people with the least money in terms of an unhealthy environment you know, near the incinerator and in a crowded, dirty place where they're not sweeping the streets and creating hygiene. And between the food that is available as Max said, food deserts. Also, children left home alone cannot be trusted to use the stove, and the easiest ways that they can feed themselves till their parents or parent gets home is things like Cheetos, Fritos, and Doritos that are full of fat and sugar and not full of nutrition. And so you have a confluence of factors converging on food, which, and also highly affecting mental health so your insights are really important even though i don't understand the psychobiology i do understand the social effects
1: well actually one more comment on this i going back to my background so i grew up m- almost entirely with my my single mom in section 8 housing and for listeners that don't know what that is it's um it's poor people housing so like you um if you qualify, you like usually you go on a waitlist uh, through like some housing authority uh, institution on a local level, and then you have to show that you don't make. A lot of money and then the government subsidizes uh the housing and so we grew up in like a section eight housing project for the most part like this big housing complex um dedicated specifically to low-income housing in some cases i think it depends on your state or county or whatever you can get section eight vouchers so you can get a a landlord that just accepts section eight although often they don't because they think that you know there's going to be like crime and troublemaking associated with it but so i grew up in section eight housing and um you know, my mom at some point she was working three jobs. I think for most of my upbringing, it was just one, and she just worked a whole lot. But um, she was subject to the following. So I was this little brat kid with tons of behavioral problems and mood problems and all kinds of stuff from you know what I was exposed to in my life. And um, so I was always just kind of complaining to her, like, "Why don't you buy me more McDonald's? Why won't you buy me the that shitty toy in the aisle in the grocery <laughs> store or whatever?" And like every parent probably is subject to that. But if you think about it. It wasn't just me being impulsive and having behavior problems and her being um, stressed and poor. It was that the advertising industry targets children and makes them feel like it's it, it creates almost like an addiction for kids where they see the really colorful, childish pictures of things on the TV or on the mm-hmm. cereal boxes or whatever. And all of these products that they're targeting children with are really, really bad for them. Um, Mm -hmm. they're, they're bad for them on, on levels that, you know, Harriet and I can't speak on in terms of like, we couldn't tell you which molecular, um, (laughs) like neurological, I don't know, brain, like we're not biologists or medical doctors, but like, um, there are people smarter than us in that regard that could probably break down all the ways like inflammatory foods and high fructose corn syrup and all of that, um, impact your body and your brain. But so, you know, as like a poor kid growing up, I was constantly demanding that my mom buy me more and more crap. Eventually, we created a ritual where every Friday, as soon as she got off work, we'd go to McDonald's and I'd get a happy meal and she'd buy me like an extra couple cheeseburgers or whatever. And it's delicious. I mean, I still think fast food tastes yeah. really good, but it's full designed to taste really good. It's full of sugar. It's full of garbage. Fat. Really, I mean, it's, and it's not, I mean, none of it's real. It's all like, manufa- um, it's, it's like fake. It's created in a lab and then, um, the fast food industry lobbies the government to get subsidies to keep those prices low so that they can outcompete the healthier foods, right? So, um, there's definitely a socioeconomic factor to this and the way that impacts, um, just even your physical health is going to then impact your mental health too, because once you have physical health problems and you're, um, you're more in pain and all of that, um, and you, I don't know, you're exercising less because you're less in shape, you know, it's going to impact your mood and your mental health. So there's some like obvious and intuitive ways to go into that, but maybe sometime we could get some uh, uh, fancy like neurologist or nutritionist or something to talk about this stuff too.
0: Also, it's much more work to prepare and cook fresh vegetables than it is to open a bag of chips. And the more tired and overworked, and one out of three American children lives with a single mother. So people who come home exhausted might not ever really want to give their kids unhealthy food, but it's mighty tempting to do something fast that the children like. So you can just sit there and relax at McDonald's. You see single moms, with their kids, their kids are in the playground, their kids are getting a happy meal and they can just sit after work. So there's a big inducement to unhealthy food and then greater stress and an unhealthy mind and body. It's part Mm -hmm. of the effect of poverty.
1: I never really put that together. But yeah, my mom was exhausted. She was, um, I mean, she was just kind of like depressed, fatigued, reactive, irritable. She'd just be like, shut the hell up, you know, go, you know, make something for yourself. She actually did try to cook uh, as much as she could, but she was just fatigued after work so much of the time. Um, so yeah, definitely, it's easier to say like, hey, kid, shut up, go, you know, make yourself a bowl of cereal or go eat that pack of um, colorful, crappy, sugary foods. And let me numb out on the TV and, and wish my life weren't so miserable. You know, it's again, like it's nothing against my mom and it's nothing against other poor parents. Um, parents are super stressed these days. So,
0: and they don't Um, get any support.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's not like,
0: I'm sorry. It's just, uh, once I get off on this, it's difficult, but it's not like (laughs) Sweden where unmarried mothers with children or single mothers with children make, 95% 95% of what men earn and have extra subsidies in clothing for their children's school, in housing, and so on. Even in France, they have special vouchers so that if you have children in school and you're below a, a certain income level, the government sends you money to get your kids new school clothes and to get your kids books and so on. It's, mm-hmm. And they also have highly subsidized excellent after-school programs that cannot cost more than 15 percent of your income and summer mm. programs and daycare <laughs> which takes that terrible burden off
1: of parents
0: and particularly that's, mothers
1: that's blasphemy I uh, that's all that <laughs> is uh we're never going to have that in the. US no I'm just kidding selling um, but we don't yeah those are that is not what our uh, our political system values is uh, taking not care not of women now. and <clears throat> single moms and whatnot. Hello, this is Michael Hitchcock calling in. I love your show with all of my heart. It is exactly aligned with my interests. (laughs) I only have a minute on this voice message that you have requested someone try. So I'll use that minute and I'll leave another one some other time. For now, I will express extreme gratitude and delight at your entire gag of breathing in peace and breathing out your exploitative relationship with your landlord that whole gag was great and when you refer to Gloria Steinem as the CIA plant that tickles and delights me more than I can say keep up the good work you are my favorite podcast at this time I will write again thank you so much
0: Well, I'm really glad he liked it, and it's a very important moment for undoing the damage that the CIA-FBI Operation Mighty Wurlitzer did in the late 60s and 70s, which in the Black movement separated Black power from civil rights and made whites the enemy, and in the women's movement made men the enemy to divide and omit the class consciousness that had been a part of both movements under the socialists and the communist trade unions like the International Longshoremen's Union, fighting racism was a way of fighting the tact, the strike-breaking technique of bringing in blacks if whites were on strike. And it made a unified, powerful movement so much that Martin Luther King became an honorary ILGWU, International Longshoremen's Workers Union, member, and and said at their 10th anniversary, union organizing together is the best anti-poverty program that exists. I'm proud to be an honorary member. And he also was killed in Memphis, where he was trying to help organize the sanitation workers because race and class were united then, and so were gender and class. And it's a, it's a very subversive right-wing technique to separate the working class so that we're so busy fighting each other that we don't look up and see what's going on. Um, Martin Luther King used to say, the pharaohs, were worried they had so many slaves working underneath them to build the pyramids and other monuments to the pharaoh's power that he treated them differently by race and fomented fomented animosity between the groups so they'd be busy fighting each other and never look up. And so these latest movements where it's black and white together under Black Lives Matter are a huge reverse of all of those things. And a very positive sign. And I'm glad he liked that bit about Gloria Stein. it's important that we know that so we don't fall for those divisions between people that are unjust. Of course, there's some differences to be respected, but we need each other primarily in order to win.
1: Mm. I suppose to my credit and to Harriet's um, complicity uh, in this, the, be my partner in crime on this, but I did write most of that, the mock meditation. So thank you, um, you did. Michael, I hope, um, yeah, I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying, I would love for us to try out more things like that. And actually I want to say too, I felt kind of bad cause it felt like we were making fun, you know, we had the disclaimer in the beginning and like trying, we're not trying to make fun of or dis meditators or yoga people or anything. Hopefully that came through that we were like playfully mocking it to elicit a point point. Uh, for listeners, it wasn't to like you know make fun of people. I thought that was a lot of fun too. So I'm I'm glad Michael liked that. The CIA agent stuff I know virtually nothing about. So, I, so I, everybody listened to Harriet on this and the um, what was that book? It's just something Wurlitzer. It's called it the Great War-
0: Wurlitzer. It's about that Wurlitzer. operation of infiltrating the movements, and it yeah. isn't critical of them. It's it's not critical of of the FBI and CIA. It's just very informative. Yeah.
1: So, the only thing I can really say well I can take, say two things on Gloria Steinem. one is that when i first when I was in community college in the Bay Area many years ago, I remember reading something by Gloria Steinem um and I got kind of into radical feminism at, at a at a certain point and stuff that people would probably call like turfism, you know like trans exclusionary radical feminism um I recall really liking Gloria Steinem and I remember going to a um it's called the Bioneers Conference in the Bay area years ago also. And I think she was a keynote speaker. So I remember thinking, only feeling uh, good things about Gloria Steinem, enjoying her, her speeches, her, um, her writings and everything. But it wasn't until I think 2016 when she had that huge, there was that huge controversy over someone asking her, well, why do you think so many young women like Bernie Sanders? And she said, Oh, well they, what was that super condescending thing she said? She said like, oh, well, they just, they didn't want to get the boys to like them or something like yes. that. Yes. It was it was really insulting. And I remember just like all kinds of, you know, young young white women, young women of color. I mean, older women, like all kinds of women were just like, the fuck are you talking about? Like right. This the policy, his platform is like the only quasi sensible platform that's been introduced for decades. Like, what are you talking about? And um, so you having brought this up, the, the whole CIA agent thing and trying to create divisions in the left, Trying once again to um, pit men and women against each other to stop just basic, like social democratic uh, platforms from becoming mainstreamed into the Democratic Party. So, uh, yeah, you know,
0: I remember once being at a conference in the late 60s when Gloria Steinem was a speaker and said, We're all in this together. And the head of the welfare moms stood up and said, No, we're not. You don't have to worry about your rent. You don't have to worry about your kids. You don't live near the incinerator. We're not in the same boat. You're in the first class cabin. I'm underwater. And it was a very stirring speech because she was talking about class and income division. But in our naivete, we didn't see through it. Now we would.
1: We wanted to try to get through this uh, whole um what's it called? So it's an article from shelterforce.org. It's the voice of community development. Um, and this article called How Organizing for Justice Helps Your Mental Health. Uh, and then the subtitle is How Do Social Justice, Organizing and Mental Health Interact? Shelter Force Chats with Clinical Social Worker Don Melkin Martinez to find out. And this is an article from uh, November 22nd, 2017. I could just read bits of it and we can kind of respond to it, maybe, or
0: I think that's great. And I think just presenting that triangle model of the problem in the middle, and then the personal and institutional and cultural forces shaping the problem, is a wonderful idea.
1: Yeah. So maybe a little background on this: Harriet had sent me and the organizers we're going to do the uh, the episode with on Sunday uh, a Jane McAlevey article. Well, actually, it's an article about Jane McAlevey, who's a um, probably one of the best known. And most awesome labor organizers currently alive and still doing amazing work and we want to have this discussion about how does uh, organizing impact your mental health for better and for worse because it's obviously very empowering but it's also stressful as hell to be like fighting all the time but um i started googling different terms like organizing and mental health and i initially was looking for peer-reviewed research to see if there'd been any studies on like impacts on mental health, on things like, say, depression, anxiety, connectivity to other people when you're engaged in you know, political organizing, social organizing. Uh, but then I just found this article and this amazing model that this, uh, this social worker had developed. And she's pretty clear that she says she didn't really develop it. It was actually the clients, the people she was working with in the hospitals, they'd like collaboratively come up with it. And so she's calling it the liberation health model. And this is pretty new to me and Harriet. So, you know, be forgiving to us. Like we probably should have known about this a long time ago and to try to promote it. But what she says in the article, it's an interview. uh, The the interviewer says, tell me a little bit more about the liberation health model. And um, Martinez says, the liberation health model is pretty amazing. We've done a lot of work with City Life slash Vida Urbana utilizing the model. The model was developed collaboratively with clients. What we wanted to do was figure out how... How do we talk about things like race and class and gender and individualism and consumerism with the people we were working with? That's not what people think about when they come to see a therapist. They usually focus on all of these internal factors like my mother was mean to me or my dad left me and things like that. Not that those things don't influence things, but they're also influenced in conjunction with these other factors around race and class and individualism. So we figured out a tool to discuss these sort of things. The tool that we finally landed on, which is called the triangle, went through maybe six iterations because we were coming up with models that were very complex. And the families we work with didn't really like those complex models. We finally landed on this triangle, and we would put the problem they were presented with, let's say depression or anxiety, in the middle of the triangle. Whatever they said, whatever words they used to describe their problem. And then we would talk about the personal, the cultural, and the institutional factors that were influencing their problem. Personal are the things that you traditionally look at, like development or any kind of illness, abuse, loss, or trauma, things like that. Then the more complex part of it is the second two parts of the triangle. What were the messages people received that would be influencing their problem? What kinds of messages do we get about aggression? What kind of messages do we get about how boys are supposed to behave? uh, uh what kind of messages do we get? If you have problems, do you seek out other people? Do you try to fix it yourself? Individualism, racism, classism, consumerism, professionalism—what we call dominant worldview messages. How do they influence the problem? So she goes on throughout the interview and throughout the article. It's a bit of a longer article, but um, I sent this to Harriet just thinking, like, man, we—why sh- <laughs> are we not using this model? Like, I want to start mm. using this model with you know in yes. my practice. So, um, what are your thoughts on this, Harriet?
0: I think it's a wonderful idea because people come in picking up the message that it's just in your head, you know, that it's all in your head. It's just in your head that your parents didn't do this or your parents didn't do that, but not understanding what are the pressures on your parents? What is the family system in the United States? What, told you that you weren't as good outside the house as well as inside? What are the forces that shape you? Because the family is the initial environment in which we grow up. And without proper universal childcare, the way other civilized countries have, it is overwhelmingly your first environment. And you learn who you are in the reflection of other people's glances. You know, oh, that's me. That's how I'm treated. But that's one environment. Then you go into a school environment and you go into a social environment. And if you turn on the TV, which the more mothers are tired, the more TV is on, then you get the cultural messages from your culture which shape you. And so you have to look at the whole Enchilada, not just part of it, and that was very, very important because I've always tried to do that, but I didn't have a nice little triangle <laughs> in mind, which we could mm-hmm. fill in, and I think that's a wonderful idea.
1: And I think as a group, so something I've been trying to conceptualize, and you know, maybe listeners help me out with with this, or help me and Harriet both help this out, like. So here's, here's one. I get all these like crazy ideas, like these quasi manic, like, let's do this. Let's do that. Most of it all falls apart. But, um, this one idea was like, I wonder if Harriet and I could actually facilitate some sort of like activist centered leftist, like group therapy thing while she's on the East coast, I'm on the West coast. I have no idea if that would help if that'd be possible, we'd have to do it through zoom and stuff. But like with this kind of model, they, they kind of go on even, um, like they developed this, I think it was either in hospitals or some kind of residential or, um, kind of environment and this there's this other passage that just really uh got me thinking too it said other times we'll go there and we'll have a group i worked with the bilingual group at city life for quite some time people really liked it it was an opportunity for them to talk about how the stress of their eviction and foreclosure and rent increases was affecting them and having this kind of comprehensive response around the triangle basically okay so what kind of messages do we get and how does this affect you and it was really cool because it felt like i was I was just a minor facilitator. They had mastered this stuff so much that they would be offering suggestions to each other. Like when you really get low, how do you think about it differently? And how do you not let the regular, the man message into your head? And as it goes on, it kind of seems like this method was like creating activists. It was creating people who would then conceptualize their personal problems as group problems, which could be solved as groups by engaging in, I can't remember the examples, but I could see this turning into like, well, let's form a tenants union or let's um, let's go to a city council meeting and let's demand that they change a law or something like that. Because if as a therapist, you're helping your clients, especially a group of clients, start to understand their problems as actually being shared, coming from a shared source, you could potentially start coming up with shared problem solving and, and solution orientation toward those problems. So, you know, I've been trying to wrap my head around this, like, well, why, um, like, why is this not a more popular model and how, you know, like, how could I use it? How could Harriet use it? Like, how could even, so listeners right now, like if you, if you guys want to email us or leave us messages saying like, I would love to get involved in that kind of thing. Maybe we could help see if, um, if there are groups, where you live that are engaged in this because it looks like this says the liberation health group has 800 people all over the country so it seems like it's a kind of group of maybe social workers and therapists that have been you know pushing in this direction of trying to conceptualize people's problems as very much outside of themselves to get them activated and this is newer to me and harriet but you know if if anybody has any ideas of how we can continue to amplify this work and, and grow it. I'm really excited about it.
0: It also segues very nicely into our next podcast on labor, because part of what this does is show people they're not alone and shows them the power of being in a group and connecting with other people in a group because organizing Mm -hmm. is also personal connection. It's building personal connection as a way of building a future that you share together. So it's it's very powerful. And I was really impressed by that liberation health model because it also shows in a neat little triangle what's much more difficult to explain if you start from scratch. So we both recommend that liberation health model as worth seeing.
1: There's even a part here where it says, uh, the interviewer says, is it mostly groups that are that already have an organizing component that reached out to you. And she says, no, we're surprisingly getting calls from places that we never thought we would before. The day after the election, I don't know if that's maybe 2016 election, we did a training at Mass General. That's a pretty conservative hospital. I was actually very nervous about doing the training. I remember thinking, shit, this is going to be a tough one. And it wasn't. I think because things are so bad and people are so worried that they have to think about doing things differently. The bulk of our requests to do the training are in places that are training other people. Yeah, so that's exciting to me as well, that they're trying to train. Again, I'm just kind of learning about this, and so is Harriet, but I think they're training other clinicians, maybe in hospital settings, I guess, just to start. Um, I wonder wherever. if it's just hospitals or if they're doing it no, in other I th- settings.
0: I think they're doing it wherever they can Yeah. to empower people because yeah. she comes from a housing group. So, mm-hmm. she, you know, that wasn't... Oh, right you know, so that she's in a community housing group Mm -hmm. and she's helping people see that it's not, you know, that they weren't evicted because they're bad people. Right. They may not have managed their finances well, but they don't have finances because they've been robbed and they're in exploitative conditions at the job. And the landlord is empowered by laws that discriminate against them and the system makes them look like the loser, like in the subprime mortgage crisis where right, American right. blacks lost the little bit of equity they were having overwhelmingly because they were targeted, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Even under Obama they were.
1: Well, so this is a really exciting model. I mean, maybe we could find a way to reach out to her and get her to just speak as well. on. Um,
0: yes, on the podcast. To-
1: yeah, to just really explain how this model works and how people can get tapped into this. Any any listener who's interested in this go to uh bostonliberationhealth.org and it looks like since they're pretty expansive, like they're probably not just local to Boston. It seems like it just kind of originated in Boston, but um yeah, this is exciting and ex- inspiring to me and it's something that I wish uh they taught me about in my uh in my grad program and yeah. something that um we could even do where I currently work um although I'm I'm giving my four week notice quitting on Monday. <laughs> so it won't really be, use, it won't be useful to me anymore. But yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this and I hope we can continue talking about it.
0: I think it will influence both of our practice and our speeches and everything else. It's a wonderful model.
1: Um, well, so we only have a couple of minutes. Do you have any last thoughts, Ariette, before we go?
0: Well, just that really these things are all of a piece. Wanting to know it's not just in your head wanting to reach out to other people as to the institutional, gender, job, health care forces, as well as the cultural messages that if you're rich, you're somehow blessed, even if you got it by robbing children, that, um, that we are caught in this web, and the more we tear off the sticky threads that trap us the better off we are and the more we can feel empowered together and the less we can feel ashamed check your shame at the door is one of the things that they say which i agree
1: and a reminder to listeners you can email us at it's not just in your head at gmail.com and um i do want to throw this in there as well i have mixed feelings about it but so we're um we're probably going to start a patreon soon and those who don't know what that is it's like a um, a supporter led thing where people can give like, you know, a dollar a month or 10 bucks or a hundred bucks a month to support the project. Um, just cause it would, it would help cause it does take some work to do this podcast. And, um, one of the things that's really common with that we haven't a hundred percent decided yet is to, that we would prioritize answering, uh, messages and emails by patrons probably if we shifted into that a bit more, which wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't want to give the message that like, we don't care about what non-patrons have to say. We'd still want to consider that. But it is a good sort of incentive system for people to feel like they're getting something out of supporting the podcast. So we may shift in that direction uh, soon and we'll try to manage it in a way that isn't like saying, you know, we don't give a shit about what people think who aren't paying us kind of thing. You know, it's definitely not our, you know, it's not how we it's are. It's not our um, ethic.
0: However, everybody has to understand that we operate within a capitalist system. So in order to do things, you need money. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the unpleasant realities. We don't have huge funds, you know, to create inventive podcasts and reach people.
1: Right. And so the Patreon approach is a pretty cool approach. And then it's just, you know, if you are listening to this and you think like some of our listeners saying like, I love this podcast so much, and this is my favorite podcast, you know, when we get the Patreon set up, consider, you know, whatever you're able to, um, to throw into the support pool for us. And, you know, we're going to have to think intelligently about like, how do we create different sort of like reward incentive tiers within the, the thing. And, um, Anyway, that's, that's upcoming. We're not sure when we're going to move into that direction, but just want to give people a heads up.
0: Also, if people have ideas of how we should do this, we're really open to it because unfortunately mm-hmm. we are functioning within a money system. And so we, we mm-hmm. would want your ideas on how to be able to get some income into this podcast and be able to expand it.
1: Absolutely. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening. And you know how to contact us if you'd like to give us feedback and, uh, I guess that's a wrap.
0: Yes. Thank you.
1: Contact us at it's not just in your head at gmail.com. Thank you very much. Bye bye.